Welcome to the weekly podcast from thebusinessofpleasure.com, a cross-sector forum dedicated to exploring and exploiting the shared borders between entertainment, culture, and travel. Uh, welcome to this month's interview from The Business of Pleasure. I'm here with Olivier and Tony Award-winning producer Chris Harper. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hi, David. Um, Chris, you and I worked together way back in the Dark Ages when you were brought in as a marketing consultant on Phantom of the Opera. What yeah, it sounds like 100,000 years ago now, but yes, yes, it, it, it did indeed. It was some time ago, but I can still remember accompanying you around Her Majesty's, looking for ways to extract more revenue from the show. Yeah, um, I remember that too. <laughs> well, it's surprisingly how few seats there are in that theatre. Well, you managed to find some that had evaded <laughs> people for many years. I did, yes. And, and then, you, then you renamed them. So the bland-sounding dress circle became the royal circle. The apple circle became the grand circle. Um, oh, David, your I, memory is so much better than mine. <laughs> that I, does sound like the kind of thing I would do, though. And I think you put the prices up accordingly. And at the other extreme... Um, I remember you t- taking over the Daily Telegraph front and back page oh, yes. for the souvenir edition, oh, yes. which was I uh, remember that very well. Quite, quite something in those days. But what? Well, what it was a great show. It, it still is. It is. It, it's one of those shows. It's people say to me, "Well, look, um, surely Phantoms had its day." No. Not as long as there is a need for romance. Tell me how many other romantic shows there are in the West End. Exactly. No. Exactly. Um, uh, we all, you know, and particularly now, people need something that's epic and spectacular and something that's really going to take them out of their lives. And that's sure. what shows like that do. But um, what about your beginnings in the business, Chris? Even further back in time. <laughs> what? What, how I began in theatre? Yeah. Uh, was there an event or a formative experience which made oh, you decide gosh, yes, on the business of pleasure? Yeah, it's all very vivid in my mind. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in a fairly grey council estate in the Midlands, near, not far from Birmingham, about 20 miles away from Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And my parents took me, surprisingly, because my parents don't actually like the theatre very much, they took me to see a pantomime at the Birmingham Hippodrome. Right. And I remember it being one of the most incredible moments of my life because I walked into that building and I didn't even really know what a theatre was, but I knew I liked it. It was exciting. It was um, just a completely thrilling. The experience of walking through the building was exciting enough. And then when I sat down in the seat and that moment of anticipation where you collectively come together as an audience, you know, mm-hmm. a whole 1,250, however many people it is, a bunch of strangers sure. all sitting next to each other in the dark, waiting mm-hmm. for something about to happen. Magical. And I remember that feeling being completely visceral. And I actually was blown away in a way that uh, I still think about today. And, and I said to myself then, I want to work in the theatre. And I think I was six years old. So, so you started when you were seven or eight? Well, pretty much. I mean, then I, I, at the time, I didn't understand that you 
Well, the only way I thought that you could work in the theatre was if you became an actor. Mm -hmm. So I became pretty... I threw myself into any kind of performance at school and, right. and I auditioned for shows and I didn't get anywhere, although I did play lots of parts in school plays, mm -hmm. played Joseph and, you know, and I was just any, anything I could do to think that would give me a foot in the door of one day a career in the theatre. And then we had, I was very, very lucky. I went to a secondary school where the drama and the arts was very much central to that school. Mm-hmm. And we had lots of school trips and I would go on those. And I remember going to see a production of Jane Eyre and I saw somebody push the scenery on and I thought, oh, great, I don't have to be an actor. So age kind of, I don't know, I was 12 or 13, something like that. And I thought, well, that's it, I'll become a stagehand. And um, as I was going through my secondary school, you know, age about 13, people mm -hmm. were starting to talk about work experience. Sure. And... Um, I called up the Birmingham Rep Theatre and said, can I come and work for you for free? And they said, sure. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did when I was, I think, 14 years old. Right. And I started working in a theatre, mm -hmm. doing anything. I would get people's lunch. I'd fetch their dry cleaning. I'd make the tea. I'd sweep the floor. I'd do anything I could just to get my kind of foot in the door, so to speak. And, and, and then when I... And then I got, you know, started to have to think seriously about a career and I was planning to take my A-levels. Um, but I failed very miserably all of my GCSEs. And so I was planning to retake my GCSEs when a job came up at the Birmingham Rep. Right. And so they offered me the job and the rest is history. Brilliant. Um, what was that first job, Chris? So I was the marketing assistant at the boat. No, not even a marketing assistant. It wasn't even called marketing then. It was called publicity. Right. So, <laughs> and uh, so I was the publicity assistant. And I think that was 1988. Right. And I worked at the rep for a good couple of years, mm -hmm. still making the tea and still <laughs> right. sweeping up. And, and then I got offered a job at the Birmingham Hippodrome, which was the theatre where I'd gone to see the pantomime when I was six. Right. And I thought, well, this is it. I've made it. The career, the career I've reached the pinnacle because for me it was the most exciting theatre in the world because it did everything ballets, plays, sure. opera, pantos, musicals, everything. And that was an amazing training ground for me, really. So I got to kind of figure out what I liked. Mm -hmm. And although the rep was amazing, it was very, it was a producing theatre. And at that point, I didn't really even understand what that meant. But so there was a, it was a, a lot of plays which I loved, but at the Hippodrome, it was big shows you know sure, i mean absolutely. shows coming directly from the west end and you know i, I remember taking with uh, miss O'Gorn there yeah exactly and so all of the big shows that leave london will pretty much usually play that theater and so i got to work on absolutely everything and uh, and then after a couple of years of doing that i was almost 20 um I was offered a job working for a producer called andre tishinsky who sadly recently died oh, but uh, he was until until he died, he was my mentor and has played an integral part mm -hmm. in um, helping guide my career. And he was producing a production of My Fair Lady, which came to the Hippodrome. Right. And I worked on that and he, uh, you know, offered me an interview for a job. And, right. uh, and I got the job and I moved to London when I was 20. Brilliant. What, that, what, with, uh, what, what an amazing step forward uh, coming, to the, coming to the smoke. Um, yeah, but by that point what? you've already you'd already done you know, seven eight years, Four years worth, of, yeah. <laughs> worth of graft. 
Well, I'd done four years of being paid and seven years, seven years in total, three years of not being paid, which is really hard. You know, it was very hard. I mean, my parents did not approve. They didn't like the theatre. They mm-hmm. didn't want me to go into the theatre. They thought that I was never going to earn any money. And so they were very against the idea of the theatre. And I remember having long conversations with my mum about how I wanted to do the thing I loved. And she mm-hmm. said, but, what do you, mean? you know, no one does the thing they love for work. <laughs> and I said, but I do. I am only, and I don't care about making money. I only want to do the thing that I really am passionate about. And she just was, it blew her mind. I had she the just sa- couldn't I, understand. I had exactly the same thing with my parents, Chris. Um, it was almost like you were consigned to live in a particular way because you were born into that family. You stuck by their rules, and that was the end of it. If you yeah. dared to dream to do anything different, that was it, out the door. Um, yeah. So you came to London. I remember Our House, the Madness Musical. You were yeah. heavily involved yeah. with that show which is a great show and deserved a longer run, in my opinion, Um, and a few others before moving across, excuse me, before moving across to the National, Mm. um, first in the marketing, leading the marketing, and then that, that big step to producing. Yeah, I mean, I'd always dreamed of being a producer, but because I came from a... I mean, just even a career in the theatre felt like such a leap for me to make. Mm-hmm. So once I'd got to the, you know, managed to get my foot in the door and get myself a position in the theatre, uh, I kind of, lo- I totally loved it. It was everything I dreamed about. It was a f- sort of family. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something I cared about passionately. And I think if you really care about something it's inevitable that you will become good at it because you're devoted to it so I I didn't I wasn't dewy-eyed about it at all I wanted to become the best at it so um I worked really really hard Mm -hmm. and uh, you know I mean the irony is once I came to London I was working for Andre Tyshinsky and the majority of things he did were on tour so actually although I was dreaming of a life in the West End I didn't get that at all I spent more time on tour than I was Uh, on uh, on Preston Station waiting for the uh 7.30. Yeah, exactly. Preston Station <coughs> was the place you changed that. Exactly. <laughs> so I did a, I, so I've really felt like I kind of did my dues in terms of working pretty much every theatre up and down the country. Um, and I really admired Andre. And because Andre was such a kind of uh, figure in my life mm-hmm. and he was such a good man and he was such a good producer. With, one, you know, with such felt, a wonderful sense of humour as well. Yeah. Yeah, he was amazing. I mean, genuinely incredible man on on every front, both business and personal. And I wanted to emulate him. Mm -hmm. And um, so I looked up to him and I, for a good many years, I didn't even dare to even say out loud that I wanted to be a producer because it felt such a presumption that I couldn't ever achieve the level of Mm -hmm. kind of brilliance that Andre was. So for a long time, I didn't even say it out loud. I just would secretly think it. And um, I was very fortunate that I'd done a lot of shows in London. So I did a lot of shows on tour. And then finally, Andre started doing more shows in the West End. And that that worked really well. Chicago was the biggest Mm -hmm. hit musical that I worked on. First hit musical I worked on for Andre. He was the uh, executive producer on the original Um, production of Chicago. mm -hmm. And then I... um, 
I started to say it to myself. And I did actually begin, I actually optioned a book. Right. Um, I tried to do a play version of To Sew With Love, which was a, a book I'd loved and a mm-hmm. movie that I'd loved. Um, almost in parallel to my marketing career. And and although that first production of To Sew With Love, that didn't actually happen. I didn't succeed to get the right elements together of that. Um, I, I just sort of began very quietly, almost not telling anyone. Mm-hmm. And then out of the blue, I got this phone call from the National Theatre saying, you know, we don't know you, but we hear that you're very good at marketing. Would you come and join the National Theatre? And it was the very beginning of Nick Heitner right. taking over the National Theatre. And for a long time, I thought, well, I'll never fit in at the National Theatre. I'm not the right class. I don't come. I didn't go to Cambridge. I didn't go to Oxford. <laughs> and not only that, I haven't even got any GCSEs to my name. So I didn't ever dream that I would fit in. Right. But what was so good about Nick Heitner and his um, regime of the, uh, you know, running the National Theatre mm-hmm. was what he cared about most was he wanted those theatres to be full. And he wanted them to be full of artistic integrity, the plays, but he wanted audiences to see them. And he wanted to put on shows that were big, popular successes. And that chimed really well with me. I mean, that was the kind of theatre that I liked. Mm-hmm. So um, it was felt like a very perfect storm of what he wanted the organization to be and what I might be able to bring to the table. And uh, very quickly, um, things just seemed to go well. We managed to fill the theatres very quickly. The Travelex £10 season came along and the theatres filled up. And then we were having big shows like His Dark Materials, which all made me very excited. Mm -hmm. And then bubbling away in the background was this production of something, a very little known book called War Horse. (laughs) And um, and no one knew what Warhorse was. It was a book that had only just about stayed in print. No one sure. had really read it. It hadn't won any prizes. Um, and Tom Morris came along and said, how about we turn Warhorse into a play? And I um, thought this sounded very exciting. And I think the first time I ever saw the puppet of <laughs> Joey, who's yeah. the play, you know, the lead character mm-hmm. of Warhorse, I thought, okay, this is really, really exciting. Um, but I had been at the National probably then about four years. Right. And the building was starting to tick over very, very nicely in a way that I was really proud of. Mm-hmm. And so I actually did leave the National Theatre and I was lured back to the commercial world in stage entertainment. Uh, had offered me a job doing hairspray and Strictly Come Dancing. I, in I remember in, in Poland. It, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And uh, so I was lured back to the commercial world and um, – at the time, there was an ambition that stage entertainment might be buying theatres. So that's partly why I mm-hmm. was kind of drawn to it. Um, and I spent a very nice couple of years doing Hairspray in the West End and other bits and pieces. Um, but in the meantime, while I was at stage entertainment, Warhorse was genuinely turning into something mm-hmm. that was really a, a possible success. Oh, and there was something else I just missed out. that um, For the first time, the National Theatre... Um, had decided to self-produce its own work. And that was the first time that was done properly was History Boys. Mm -hmm. And and so I did the marketing of that for it in the West End and became very close to Nick Starr and how that was all structured. And what we actually started to do was build a a sort of almost within the National Theatre, an independent arm to produce National Theatre's work in the West End. So that had worked out very well on History Boys. So when Warhorse came along, 
and Warhorse was finally turning into something that looked like it might have legs in the commercial mm-hmm. uh, in the commercial world. Nick Starr, who was the executive director of the National Theatre, said to me, would you be interested in helping us do Warhorse in the West End as a producer? And I, well, it was a dream come true. Of I mean, course. it felt like, wow, this is, this is truly what I've dreamed about my whole life. And um, so I did go back to the National Theatre, but this time as a producer. And uh, we quickly had Warhorse running in the West End. Then we had a production running in Toronto and then we had a Broadway production. And following that was a USA tour and there were productions in Berlin and Amsterdam and Australia and China. All, so all I, starting from that little conversation that uh, mm, Michael Mopogo overheard in, in the pub mm, in Devon. Yeah. And yeah. him scratching his head and thinking, I think there's a story here. And gosh, what a story. Mm. Well, Michael is a brilliant visionary storyteller and and somehow manages to capture uh, the imagination of kids in the most simple but beautiful way. And I, I think, you know, the story of the book of All Horse is very, very moving. And as you say, yes, it was sort of stemmed out of a conversation in a pub. Well, there were two conversations. There was a conversation in the pub with an old war veteran who his best friend had been a horse in the war mm-hmm. and the only person that he was comfortable talking to. And Michael also ran this farm for underprivileged kids who lived in the city. And these kids would come to the farm and they would learn how to milk cows and, mm-hmm. you know, take the eggs from the hens and, you know, feed chickens and spend a week on the farm. And one of those kids uh, couldn't or didn't speak and um, was very silent and away from all the other kids. And one night, Michael heard him talking to the horse and telling the horse about the eggs that he caught, picked up that day and the chickens and how he'd fed them and how he'd taken care of the, the animals on the farm. And Michael thought, OK, this is really something here. So he put those two stories together of a boy who loved his horse in the war and turned into a war horse. Amazing man. Which, and what yeah, he's done, he's truly what he's done for children's literature. I mean, how many children have you know, got a love of books? I remember at Warhorse, mm. I, I introduced my daughter to him. I said, Michael, this is Chloe. She's only read two books and you've ri- written both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's an amazing man. I mean, he really is an amazing writer. But also, again, a bit like Andre, he sort of does so much more sure. for the community and for kids, underprivileged kids, and has this whole charity going on. And I'm sure he could have quite a nice life just creaming in the royalties. But no, him and his wife are out there. Uh, fighting the fight for those people that need it. Um, so, correct me if I'm wrong, but from Warhorse, you then went on to Curious Incident? Well, there was a number... Of, I, I can't quite remember gladness. the order of things. I mean, it, it feels like after everything we've gone through the last 18 months, I can't quite remember the order. <laughs> but I think, I think what happened next was then we... The National Theatre had a very big success on its hands with One Man, Two Governors. Mm-hmm. And James Corden... Um, wanted to do the show on Broadway. And um, uh, something happened that rarely happens is that there was a large theatre, the Adelphi, became available. Mm-hmm. And at exactly the time when we might have been transferring One Man, Two Governors with James Corden into the West End. And a 16-week slot came, and at the time, Andre was programming really oh. useful theatres. And so 
we managed to put a play into the Adelphi, which was something that hadn't happened for a very, very long time. And we sold every single ticket. And then the show went to Broadway and was a big success. And overnight, James Corden became, you know, the the major celebrity he now is in America on the back of his Tony win for One Man Two Guns. Who was also in the History Boys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You see all of these sort of things all weave together in some weird and magical way. To me. And so um, James, I mean, and it was because of the attention he got from, you know, he had the experience of doing History Boys on Broadway and mm -hmm. really wanted to go back to do it again. And that one man, two governors happened. And um, the, the three shows, War Horse, Curious Incident and One Man, Two Governors, mm -hmm. uh, when, when we were promoting a super break, um, we, we always referred to them as plaisicles. Yes. Because they were plays, but music played such an important part. And it, it kind of lifted mm. the experience. That's right. That's right. I mean, the music was a very huge, well, huge part in all three of them. I mean, mm. live music in two of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, One Man and Two Governors had its own band. Yeah. And everyone in it had to be musical. War Horse had its own, um, you know, live music played in it too. Some of it taped, but mm -hmm. some of it live. Um, with a you know a song man that kind of wove through the whole story of War Horse, um, and Curious had a lot of music too, although taped. And the same composer uh, of the music was on Curious Incident. Adrian Sutton also composed some of the music in War Horse too. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was through my relationship with Marianne Elliott really that. Um, because of my experience of War Horse, I got to know her very well. She co-directed War Horse with Tom Morris. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd be become a huge fan of her work. And I was absolutely devoted to the kind of, as you say, the musical nature of the way she approached a play. I mean, Curious Incident. I mean, there was end of some of those scenes. People would applaud because mm -hmm. it was so theatrical. And uh, I was a super fan of Marianne's work. And then when Curious Incident came along, she was like, oh, no, it'll never have a life in the West End. No, 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 it's not very commercial at all. It's just very experimental. And I was like, no, Marianne, this work must be seen again. And because she had learned to trust me on War Horse and believed that I would take care of her work and, mm -hmm. and uh, look after it very carefully, um, we formed a relationship that was a very strong one. And she was very... Uh, uneasy initially about Curious Incident going into the West End. Well, the West End but, audience you know, is really, um, really appreciated that show. They, um, uh, you know, you, I, I, I'm sure many people would have been on with Marion saying, "Oh, it's it's not right for the West End," but they were mm. they were absolutely. I mean, you left that theatre seeing the world in a different way. That's the only way I could describe it. And you could actually see it in the faces of the audiences as they left. They, yeah. their, their world had changed because they could see a different way of seeing the world through the play, which is what a work of art is. It, exactly. I mean, it was, you know, the, one of the most moving experiences of my life the first time I saw that play. I mean, it was talk about visceral and energetic and life changing. And, you know, that's what Marianne says to me all sure. the time is, oh, my God, you know, only do it if it's not going to be boring. So, <laughs> you know, who wants to sit to a boring theatre? I mean, it's absolutely dire. So, you know, 
all of my kind of experiences of the shows that I'm drawn to are the things that make you really excited, make your heart beat a little faster, your pulse a little quicker. And that's the kind of theatre that we should be aiming to see. So, um, so in 20, so yeah, 2016, um, you formed Harper Elliott Productions with Marianne? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which was, I mean, what, what, what a great partnership with, with the work that you, the collaborations that you had previously, but that didn't, didn't necessarily mean that you were going to hit hits afterwards. No. So um, we're all watching with bated breath, and of course, <laughs> <laughs> you know, wanting it to work. Um, for, there was Heisenberg, the, um, uh-huh. that, was, that was the first, The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe with um, yeah. the wonderful West Yorkshire Playhouse. That's uh, it. And then um, a little show called Company, which yeah. you had the temerity to um, to say to Sondheim, well, I'm going to give Bobby a sex change and Bobby... Beca- <laughs> How did he react to that? Well, uh, well... Look, what was the, what was the origin and- of that idea, Chris? Well, uh, well, the origin of Company is I had seen it in 1997, I think it was, at the Donmar Warehouse with Adrian Lester, mm-hmm. and I was blown away by the by the musical itself. It's a very uh, unusual musical in that it doesn't actually have a plot. It doesn't have any linear narrative. It's moments in time, mm-hmm. and it's about a 35-year-old guy who's unmarried, and all of his friends tell him he should be married. And I was about 35 at the time, maybe a bit younger, but um, the first time I saw it. But all my friends were saying to me, why are you married? What's wrong with you? And I felt a huge amount of pressure to meet the perfect partner. And to be honest, it never happened. Mm -hmm. And so that's a show that had always had this huge resonance with me. And cut to many years later, I decided to become a father and decided to have children and I had gone through all of the various versions of ways that I, as a single parent, could Mm -hmm. have children. I spent a long time trying to adopt, and that didn't work out. And then I decided to have my own children with a surrogate in America. Mm -hmm. And I was having twins, and very um, suddenly, they came early. They were very premature. They were born 10 weeks early. And They decide these things, not us, Chris. They do. They sure do. And uh, I was in it. had to fly to America very quickly and they were there and they were in hospital for six weeks, almost seven weeks. And it was very scary at the beginning. And I was a new father, a single father on my own, dealing with two children who'd just been born very early. And on my way to the hospital every morning, I listened to Adrian Lester singing this incredible song called Being Alive. And it's a song that I have always found to be very comforting Mm -hmm. in times of real need and I think Stephen Sondheim is an absolute legendary extraordinary masterful composer and so I listened to this song on my way to the hospital pretty much every morning and I was thinking about the plays and musicals that Marianne and I might do and Marianne has had a particular desire to tell stories about female protagonists Mm -hmm. and I was as I was listening to it I thought this show is unbelievably brilliant, but it might just be even better if Bobby was a woman because it was written in 1969 and it was done in 1970. But now, who cares about a 35-year-old guy that's unmarried? In fact, 
good on you if you you know you're having yeah partners here you know no one no there's no pressure on a man to get married now in 2020 or 2016 as it was then mm-hmm. but women i have so many of my female friends and here i am a 45 year old man with two children i can have kids whenever it suits me sure there's no time clock as far as i'm concerned and i thought you know but my female friends are constantly being asked that question so i called marianne and said how would you feel if we did company with bobby as a woman and she said oh that's a terrible idea it's not very good at- <laughs> oh no 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 and i was a bit annoyed with her and i put the phone down and i said well i'm arriving at the hospital now i'll talk to you tomorrow and the next day she called me back and she said mm, i've been thinking about this maybe 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 might work it probably won't but it might it could but maybe Right. But um, Stephen Sondheim will never say yes. And when we were doing Curious Incident on Broadway, mm-hmm. he had invited Marianne for dinner at his house. And he had said to her, if ever there's anything of mine you would like to do, the answer will be yes. Right. So I said, didn't he tell you? That's <laughs> a sweet thing isn't it? Didn't he say that he wanted you to direct his work? She said, oh, he didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. And I said, well, look, let's just see what happens. Right. Let's see. So we did propose it to him. Marianne did a lot of work on it and looked at it very, very carefully. And she flew over to New York to see him and had dinner with him and said, how about we do this? And initially he wasn't very keen. He said, I, I, I wrote it as a guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that would work as a woman. But he said, why don't you do a workshop? And if you can convince yourselves that it's a good idea, then maybe you'll be able to convince me. Right. And so we did a workshop of it. We did it exactly as we were imagining. Mm -hmm. Bobby is a woman. And we recorded it. And as we recorded it, the guy who was doing the video, one of my colleagues said to him, did you get that? Have you got it all? And he said, uh, oh, God, guys, it's so good. Is it a new musical? Wow. And... When we said to him, no, 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 it was written in 1970, and, he's, you know, and when he discovered Bobby was originally yep. a guy, he said, oh, no, that just wouldn't work at all. Oh, that would be terrible. <laughs> so Stephen Sondheim got a recording of the show and the way that we were proposing doing it, and we also told him this story about a guy that didn't understand how it would even work with Bobby as a guy. Right. And he said yes. And wow. he said yes, but with lots of caveats. Well, maybe you need to do this. Maybe you need to do that. Mm-hmm. But he gave us the go-ahead, and we did the show. And then when he came to see the show on the first preview, he just said, I was wrong. This is absolutely brilliant. This is the way it should have been written. It's thrilling. Wow. And he's been nothing but a champion of the show um, and a supporter of it. And there's been the rest has been the whole journey of getting the show on has been nothing but a joy. Except um, the timing with the pandemic and... Well, with well, COVID obviously put a stop. But in terms of producing the show, mm-hmm. the show, you know, was a fantastic success in London. Um, really, truly wonderful, wonderful success. I, I, um, that I've it gave us done... the energy to take it to Broadway. But yes, COVID stopped us in our tracks. The thing about the company in London, I saw it twice. Um was yeah it it won the awards and it was a commercial success but it Mm. was being in that audience it was like being in one big family Mm. everyone in that audience was part of this part of Bobby's family or family and friends amazing Mm. reaction from the audience when I was there um 
And, and from um, company, you went on to produce Death of a Salesman, again with Marion. Hmm. Very, yeah. very different story, or was it? Well, actually, uh, I mean, it feels like that we what we sort of becoming known for is taking classics and reinventing them, mm-hmm. which is something Marianne has done pretty much her whole career, you know, whether it's Pillars of the Community, St. Joan, um, you know, she's brilliant at seeing something that previously other people haven't seen in a play. So she's really good at doing that. So, but it does feel that again, what we did with Death of a Salesman was we took that play and did it, in a way that had never been done before in exactly the same way we did Company. Company had never been done, obviously, with Bobby as a woman. Mm-hmm. But um, Rebecca Miller, who's Arthur Miller's daughter, had approached Marianne about doing Death of a Salesman with the role, the lead role of Willie Loman, played by a black actor. Mm-hmm. And Marianne said, I, um, I'm really not sure. Let me look at it. Whether Marianne's uncertainty was not that whether the idea worked, Mm-hmm. But what it was saying, Marianne is such a true and brilliant artist sure. that once she looked at it, she said, I would be interested in doing this if the Loman family are a black family right. uh, in a white world. And so it wasn't, it was a very color specific production. Mm-hmm. So the Loman family were African American and pretty much everywhere else in the show was white and it had something to say about race and what it was to be a black family in America. And, and, uh, you know, Marianne spent a lot of time worrying about whether she was the right person to tell that story. And there was a lot of, we did a lot of, you know, uh, history checking basically whether this was absolutely an accurate depiction of a black family whether this actually happened right uh, in exactly that time period and it, it really was so marianne took some persuading to do that production and she worked with a brilliant director called miranda cromwell who mm-hmm. marianne had worked with before and uh, we did it at the young vic and again it was a you know very nice success enough of a success that we should transfer it into the west end and uh, it, it was yeah it was a truly brilliant brilliant production and for me it was particularly special because uh, on one of the various school trips i'd gone on to when i was a kid i'd been to see a production of death of a salesman at, again at birmingham rep which was the first theater i worked in right. and it was for me I think he's the greatest play ever written. So it was a particular passion project of mine to do that play. So, but you know, with Marianne's desire to do a play is always based on, can she bring something new to it rather than, you know, is it just a play she wants to do? So, so I think that's for, for me, I think the key to commercial success is why now? What's the, what, what, why did, why should it connect with an audience? Mm-hmm which is what was so timely about company because it really had something to say about what it is to be a woman who is 35 today. And actually death of a salesman always has something to say to an audience today because it's so, well, the writing is so timeless, but doing it in that particular way really had something to say about race in America. So um, how did it feel sitting there in the West End watching your production of a show that you'd seen on a school trip 
mm. a, a few years previous? Like your journey had come full circle or? Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me can't, I mean, I, there, I, I, I actually sometimes pinch myself because I'm leading the life that I always dreamed I would lead in terms of, you know, yeah. wanting to be in the theatre for me was just absolutely, I couldn't look left or right. I wasn't really interested in anything else at school. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really interested in very much else as I've grown up. I love the theatre. It's what I do as a hobby. You know, I will go to the theatre three, four times, five times a week sometimes. Sure. And it's the thing I love. Um, but with everything that you do as a profession, it's a job and it's really hard. It's really, really, and never more so than it has been in the last 18 months. Sure. It's emotionally draining, the theatre. It's a very, very demanding beast. It demands every last bit of your energy. And um, it can actually, yeah, it, it can sort of eat you alive at times. It's a hungry beast. Um, so uh, as much as I was really thrilled to do Death of a Salesman, all you can really see are the things that, needs still to be fixed or how you need to get that right or worrying about that or taking care of this that goes wrong so um it was a it was a very nice moment to do that play but at the same time it was really hard work (laughs) you must have a bit of spare time because i saw a a tweet from you at the weekend saying that a a lion is coming i wasn't sure if you were at the zoo with the twins or maybe yeah Maybe that was an Aslan-type lion? It was an Aslan. So we've done this, you know, for the third time in a row, we're going to do um, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, which we did, as you say, at the West Yorkshire Playhouse a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And then we did a version of it at the Bridge Theatre a couple of years ago. And now it's going on tour. So I'm really excited to do it on tour because, you know, as I say, you know, with the start of this conversation was I started working in regional theatre when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And although I love theatre in London, I think it's really, really important that great theatre tours and great theatres done at Birmingham Rep and Manchester Royal Exchange and Edinburgh Lyceum. The heartbeat of the theatre for me is in communities up and down the country. So the fact that we're taking Lion the Witch of the Wardrobe on tour is as important for me as having company running on Broadway because, um, I hope that there are kids that like me that will be seeing productions around the country going, oh, I don't need to be an actor. I've just seen someone push the scenery on. I, I, remem- and, uh, I remember with, uh, when Cameron insisted on opening Mary Poppins in Bristol and there were these sort of people scratching their heads. And, mm. yeah, the show, wherever it's gone, has done well, but you'll never recreate the atmosphere in Bristol when the house lights went down and popping started there, for me personally, mm. it was the the venue, the, the audience, the magic was well, unbelievable. So I, I believe that really passionately, that actually that, that is where the heartbeat of theatre really is. It's not the West End, although the West End is brilliant and it's glamorous, and, or it appears to be, of course it's not glamorous at all, <laughs> um, but really it's communities. You know, seeing productions of Jane Eyre or seeing plays or seeing musicals or putting things on, things, you know, not working or, you know, writers cutting their craft in theatres up and down the country. Mm. Um, Which is why when, 
you know, when we did Warhorse first in the West End, I fought really hard to take Warhorse and Curious Incident out on tour because those shows need to be seen nationwide. And, and so uh, I'm, 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 I'm as excited about a tour as I am about a London run of something. And for Warhorse to, to start its cantry around the country in Plymouth, down, down well, the road yes. from Michael's place. <laughs> well, I, I had two bites of the cherry there. We opened it in Plymouth because that, but we, we, well, actually, we previewed it in Plymouth. So it had its premiere, but we opened it at the Birmingham Hippodrome. Ah, so you did definitely. You see? You see? And another circle. Chris, I am so grateful to, for you to, to tell your story um, for our podcast. Oh, thank you. It, it's um, what an amazing story. And I can't wait to see Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. Um, it's one that's I've been reading that since I was six or seven and every so often Mm. I pick up the Narnia books and read them again because the the sheer power of the storytelling Um, indeed so uh, and you're heading off to New York is that right yeah four weeks time we company will be back although Covid obviously stopped everyone in their tracks um, Broadway is coming back in the next few weeks and we'll open the show on November the 15th, so I'll be going back to Broadway to put it on there. Well, I'm sure it'll go brilliantly, Chris. Thanks so very much for this. Um, Great to talk to you. I I might even try and hop over to Broadway. How about that? Yeah, well, you know where I'll be. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you very, very much, Chris. All right, David, take care. Great to talk to you. Bye, dear. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to hear or read more on these subjects or contribute to our forum, please visit www.thebusinessofpleasure.com.